Thank you, Brother Mickelson, for your beautiful prayer. A few weeks ago, while returning from a regional conference, we had an experience that remains vivid in my mind. As we approached the airport, the captain came on the public address system and spoke in crisp and authoritative tones. We have an emergency. Please give me your attention. We have an emergency, and the cabin crew will give you instructions. For your own safety, please do what they ask you to do. The crew sprang into action. This was the moment for which their training had prepared them. Every one of them knew precisely what to do. All utensils were quickly secured in locked containers. Passengers were shifted to put strong men at each emergency exit. We were told to remove our glasses, lower our heads, and firmly grasp our ankles. A woman with a baby seated immediately behind me was crying. Others could be heard sobbing. Everyone knew that this was not just an exercise, but that it was for real and that it was serious. A man emerged from the flight deck door. He recognized me and stooped down to say, I am an off-duty pilot. The primary control system has failed, but I think we are going to be all right. They have managed to get the landing gear down and the flaps down. Strangely, I felt no fear. In many years of flying, I have had experiences when I have known fear. But on this occasion, I felt calm. I knew that a redundancy system had been built into the plane to handle just such an emergency and that the crew had been well-trained. I also knew that the effectiveness of that redundancy system would be known in a minute or two when the rubber hit the runway. <laughs> that moment came quickly. To the relief of everyone, the plane touched down smoothly, the landing gear held in place, the engines were reversed, and the aircraft was brought to a stop. Fire engines were standing nearby. We were towed to the gate. The crew were appropriately applauded, and some of us expressed to the Lord our gratitude. I have reflected on this experience in terms of the Church, of which we are members. The head of the Church is the Lord Jesus Christ. It is His Church. But the earthly head is our prophet. Prophets are men who are endowed with a divine calling. Notwithstanding the divinity of that calling, they are human. They are subject to the problems of mortality. We love and respect and honor and look to the prophet of this day, President Ezra Taft Benson. He's been a great and gifted leader, a man whose voice has rung out in testimony of this work across the world. He holds all the keys of the priesthood on the earth in this day, but he has reached an age where he cannot do many of the things he once did. This does not detract from his calling as a prophet, but it places limitations upon his physical activities. We have seen comparable situations in times past. President Wilfred Woodruff grew old in office. So did Presidents Heber J. Grant, David O. McKay, Joseph Fielding Smith, and more recently Spencer W. Kimball. Some people, evidently not knowing the system, 
worry that because of the president's age, the church faces a crisis. They seem not to realize that there is a backup system. In the very nature of this system, there is always on board a trained crew, if I may so speak of them. They have been thoroughly schooled in church procedures. More importantly, they also hold the keys of the eternal priesthood of God. They, too, have been put in place by the Lord. I hope I will not sound presumptuous in reminding you of the unique and tremendous system of redundancy and backup which the Lord has structured into His kingdom so that without interruption it may go forward, meeting any emergency that might arise and handling every contingency with which it is faced. To me, it is a wondrous and constantly renewing miracle. Yesterday afternoon, we sustained Ezra Taft Benson as prophet, seer, and revelator, and president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We next sustained his counselors and then the members of the Council of the Twelve Apostles as prophets, seers, and revelators. With fifteen men so described, endowed, and sustained, one not familiar with the Church might feel that there would be great confusion. But the Lord's kingdom is one of order. There is no confusion in its leadership. When a man is ordained to the apostleship and set apart as a member of the Council of the Twelve, he is given the keys of the priesthood of God. Each of the fifteen living men so ordained holds these keys. However, only the President of the Church has the right to exercise them in their fullness. He may delegate the exercise of various of them to one or more of his brethren. Each has the keys, but is authorized to use them only to the degree granted him by the prophet of the Lord. Such agency has been given by President Benson to his counselors and to the Twelve according to various responsibilities delegated to them. According to the revelation of the Lord, and I quote, Of the Melchizedek priesthood, three presiding high priests chosen by the body, appointed and ordained to that office, and upheld by the confidence, faith, and prayer of the Church, form a quorum of the presidency of the Church. This presidency of the high priesthood, after the order of Melchizedek, have a right to officiate in all the offices in the Church. Further pertaining to this principle, it is according to the dignity of his office that he, the president, should preside over the council of the Church, and it is his privilege to be assisted by two other presidents, appointed after the same manner that he himself was appointed. And in case of the absence of one or both of those who are appointed to assist him, he has the power to preside over the council without an assistant. And in case he himself is absent, the other presidents have power to preside in his stead, both or either of them. Close quote. We who serve as counselors recognize and know the parameters of our authority and our responsibility. Our only desire is to assist and help our leader with the tremendous burdens of his office. 
The Church is growing large with more than 8 million members now. It is moving across the world. Its program is extensive, complex, and deals with a host of elements. The responsibilities are many and varied, but I can say that regardless of the circumstances, the work goes forward in an orderly and wonderful way. As it was during the time when President Kimball was ill, we have moved without hesitation when there is well-established policy. Where there is not firmly established policy, we have talked with the President and received his approval before taking action. Let it never be said that there has been any disposition to assume authority or to do anything or say anything or teach anything which might be at variance with the wishes of him who has been put in his place by the Lord. We wish to be his loyal servants. We ask no honor for ourselves. We simply desire to do that which needs to be done when it needs to be done and according to policies on which the President has expressed himself. Now, as I have indicated, there are twelve others on whom have been conferred the keys of the apostleship. They are, as the Revelation describes them, the twelve traveling counselors called to be the twelve apostles or special witnesses of the name of Christ in all the world thus differing from other officers in the Church in their duties of calling. And they form a quorum equal in authority and power to the three Presidents previously mentioned. You ask, can there be two separate bodies with equal authority without confusion? Yes. The Lord has given the answer to this. He has said, the Twelve are a traveling presiding High Council to officiate in the name of the Lord under the direction of the Presidency of the Church. Concerning this matter, President Joseph F. Smith said, The duty of the Twelve Apostles of the Church is to preach the gospel to the world, to send it to the inhabitants of the earth, and to bear testimony of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as living witnesses of His divine mission. That is their special calling and they are always under the direction of the Presidency of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints when that Presidency is intact, and there is never at the same time two equal heads in the Church, never. The Lord never ordained any such thing nor designed it. There is always a head in the Church, and if the Presidency of the Church are removed by death or other cause, then the next head of the Church is the Twelve Apostles until a Presidency is again organized of three presiding High Priests who have the right to hold the office of First Presidency over the Church. Here, then, my brothers and sisters, is the remarkable plan of the Lord for the governance of His earthly kingdom. The authority to conduct its affairs was received in this dispensation under the hands of Peter, James, and John, who were ordained by the Lord when he was on the earth. And as we have seen, 
There is order in the, that, in the exercise of that authority. <clears throat> I wish now to say a few words about the men who are members of the Quorum of the First Presidency and the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. I know all of those presently serving. I have known all who have filled these chairs in the last sixty years. I am confident that no one of them ever aspired to office. No one campaigned for it. I think none ever thought himself worthy of it. This is a singular and remarkable thing. In the United States, we presently are in a campaign to elect men and women to public office. Millions upon millions of dollars are being spent in the process with hundreds of thousands working to promote the interests of their favorite candidates. How different it is with the work of the Lord. No member of this Church in his right mind would think of applying for ecclesiastical office. <laughs> Rather, we believe that a man must be called of God by prophecy and by the laying on of hands by those who are in authority to preach the gospel and administer in the ordinances thereof. The Lord Himself said of the twelve whom He selected, Ye have not chosen Me, but I have chosen you and ordained you. I am confident that no man was ever called as a general authority of this Church, certainly none I have known who did not get on his knees, confessing his weaknesses and pleading with the Lord to safeguard him against temptation and wrongdoing, and asking for the strength and the wisdom and the inspiration to perform well that which he is called upon to do. I feel that I know my brethren. I know my leader, President Benson. I have knelt with him in prayer and heard his petitions. I know his heart, and I can testify of its goodness. I know his love, and I can testify of its reality. I know his prophetic pleading, and I can testify of its sincerity. I know my associate in the presidency, Thomas S. Monson. I know of his strength and desire to advance our Father's kingdom. I know each of the twelve in seniority, from President Howard W. Hunter to Elder Richard G. Scott. These are my associates in this the work of the Almighty. As I said before, none sought this sacred office. Each was called and in some instances made serious sacrifice in accepting the call. We pray together. We meet in solemn assembly in the house of the Lord. Periodically, we partake together the sacrament of the Lord's Supper and renew our covenants with Him who is our God, taking upon ourselves anew the name of the Lord of whom we are called to testify. As brethren, we discuss various problems that come before us. Each man is different. We speak from various backgrounds and experiences. We discuss ways to improve and strengthen the work. At the outset of these discussions, there may be various points of view, but before the discussion is ended, there is total unanimity, else no action is taken. 
The Lord himself has declared that such unity is an absolute necessity. Is this a different kind of government? It is the government of the kingdom of God in the earth. It is unique in its organization. It is a system under which, if one man is unable to function, the work does not stumble or falter. To revert to my earlier illustration, there is a crew aboard with long, in-depth training. There is a system, a divinely mandated system, under which there is backup and redundancy to move the work and govern the Church in all the world, regardless of difficulties that may befall any of its leaders. My brethren of whom I have spoken are apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ. I bear witness of their integrity. I bear witness of their faith. I bear witness of the voice of inspiration and revelation in their calls. Everyone is a man of tested strength, but the greatest of these strengths lies in the acknowledgment that he must have divinely given direction and blessing if he is to perform acceptably. Now, in conclusion, do you believe this body of men would ever lead this Church astray? Remember whose Church this is. It carries the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who stands at its head. His is the power to remove any foundry miss in his duty or in teaching that which is not in harmony with his divine will. I say for each and all that we have no personal agenda. We have only the Lord's agenda. There are those who criticize when we issue a statement of counsel or warning. Please know that our pleadings are not motivated by any selfish desire. Please know that our warnings are not without substance and reason. Please know that the decisions to speak out on various matters are not reached without deliberation, discussion, and prayer. Please know that our only ambition is to help each of you with your problems, your struggles, your families, your lives. May I say by way of personal testimony that for more than a third of a century I have served as the general authority of this Church. For twenty of those years I sat in the circle of the Council of the Twelve. For eleven-plus years I have served as a counselor in the First Presidency. I know how the system works. I know that it is divine in its plan and in its authority. I know that there is no desire to teach anything other than what the Lord would have taught. He has said that the decisions of these quorums, or either of them, are to be made in all righteousness, in holiness and lowliness of heart, meekness and long-suffering, and in faith and virtue and knowledge, temperance, patience, godliness, brotherly kindness, and charity. It is in this spirit that we seek to serve. He further said concerning that which is taught by his servants that those who receive it in faith and work righteousness shall receive a crown of eternal life, but those who harden their hearts in unbelief and reject it, it shall turn to their own condemnation." Close quote. When we plead with our people to observe the Sabbath day, to refrain from making it a day of merchandising, 
We are only repeating that which the Lord declared anciently and which He has confirmed through modern revelation. When we decry gambling, we are only reiterating what has been said by prophets who have gone before. When we urge the strengthening of the foundations of our homes, we are only doing that which will bless the lives of our families. When we urge our people to live the law of tithing, we are only repeating that which the Lord spoke of anciently and confirmed anew in this dispensation for the blessing of His people. When we warn against pornography, immorality, drugs, and such, we are doing only that which prophets have always done. Ours is the responsibility outlined by Ezekiel. Son of man, I have made thee a watchman under the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. We have no selfish desire in any of this other than the wish that our brethren and sisters will be happy, that peace and love will be found in their homes, that they will be blessed by the power of the Almighty in their various undertakings in righteousness. I thank all who with uplifted hands and generous hearts sustain us and uphold us in these responsibilities. May the Almighty bless you, my beloved brethren and sisters. This is the work of God, our Eternal Father, who lives and rules in the universe. It is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer, the living Son of the living God. It has been established upon the earth with divine authority, with a prophet and other leaders called through the voice of revelation and trained through long years of service. It will never fail. It will continue to succeed. I make a promise to all who uphold and sustain it and who strive with faith and prayer to live its principles that they will be blessed with happiness and accomplishment in this life and joy and eternal life in the world to come. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. This is an appropriate moment to thank Elder Hanks for his influence on my life in so many moments over so many years. Eighteen years ago, from this same pulpit, I pled with those who stood indecisively on the porch of the Church to come fully inside. Today my plea is to those members already inside, but whose discipleship is casual, individuals whom we love, whose gifts and talents are much needed in building the kingdom. Any call for greater consecration is, of course, really a call for all of us. But these remarks are not primarily for those who are steadily striving, who genuinely seek to keep God's commandments and yet sometimes fall short. Nor is this primarily for those few in deliberate noncompliance, including some who cast off on intellectual and behavioral bungee cords <laughs> in search of new sensations only to be jerked about by the old heresies and the old sins. Instead, these comments are essentially for the honorable members 
who are skimming over the surface instead of deepening their discipleship and who are casually engaged rather than anxiously engaged. Though nominal in their participation, their reservations and hesitations inevitably show through. They may even pass through our holy temples, but alas, they do not let the holy temples pass through them. Such members accept callings, but not all of the accompanying responsibilities. Hence, their church chores must often be done by those already anxiously engaged. Some regard themselves as merely resting between church callings. But we are never in between as to this soaring call from Jesus. What manner of men and women ought ye to be? Verily I say unto you, even as I am. It is never safe to rest regarding that calling. In fact, being valiant in one's testimony of Jesus includes striving to become more like him in mind, heart, and attributes. Becoming this manner of men and women is the ultimate expression of orthodoxy. All are free to choose, of course, and we would not have it otherwise. Unfortunately, however, when some choose slackness, they are choosing not only for themselves, but for the next generation and the next. Small equivocations in parents can produce large deviations in their children. Earlier generations in a family may have reflected dedication, while some in the current generation evidence equivocation. Sadly, in the next, some may choose dissension as erosion takes its toll. While casual members are not unrighteous, they often avoid appearing to be too righteous by seeming less committed than they really are, an ironic form of hypocrisy. Some of these otherwise honorable members mistakenly regard the Church as an institution, but not as a kingdom. They know the doctrines of the kingdom, but more as a matter of recitation than of real comprehension. Casual members are usually very busy with the cares and the things of the world, much as Honorable Amulek once was. Called many times, he would not hear. He really knew concerning the truths of the gospel, but Amulek would not acknowledge that he knew. One common characteristic of the honorable but slack is their disdain for the seemingly unexciting duties of discipleship, such as daily prayer, regular reading of the scriptures, attendance at sacrament meeting, paying a full tithe, and participating in the holy temples. Such disdain is especially dangerous in today's world of raging relativism and of belching sensualism, a world in which, if many utter the name of deity at all, it is only as verbal punctuation or as an expression of exclamation, not adoration. In contrast, those sincerely striving for greater consecration neither cast off their commitments nor the holy garment. They avoid obscenity, keep the law of chastity, pay their tithes, and love and serve their spouses and children. As good neighbors, they bear one another's burdens, mourn with those that mourn, comfort those in need of comfort, and valiantly stand as witnesses of God at all times and in all places and in all things.
When the determination is first made to become more spiritually settled, there is an initial vulnerability. It is hard to break with the past. But once we begin, we see how friends who would hold us back spiritually are not true friends at all. Any chiding from them reflects either resentment or unconscious worry that somehow they are being deserted. In any attempt to explain to them, our tongue is able to speak only the smallest part. We continue to care for them, but care for our duty to God more. Brigham Young counseled candidly. Some do not understand duties which do not coincide with their natural feelings and affections. There are duties which are above affection. End of quote. It is only fair to warn that any determination to seek greater consecration will soon expose what we yet lack, a painful but necessary thing. Remember the rich, righteous young man who was told by Jesus, One thing thou lackest. Ananias and Sapphira, otherwise good members of the Church, kept back a portion instead of consecrating their all. Some would never sell Jesus for thirty pieces, but they would not give him their all either. Unfortunately, we tend to think of consecration only in terms of property and money. But there are so many ways of keeping back part. One might be giving of money and time and yet hold back a significant portion of himself. One might share talents publicly, yet privately retain a particular pride. One might hold back from kneeling before God's throne and yet bow to a particular gallery of peers. One might accept a church calling but have his heart more set on maintaining a certain role in the world. Still others find it easier to bend their knees than their minds. Exciting exploration is preferred to plodding implementation. Speculation seems more fun than consecration, and so is trying to soften the hard doctrines instead of submitting to them. Worse still, by not obeying, these few members lack real knowing. Lacking real knowing, they cannot defend their faith and may become critics instead of defenders. A few of the latter end up in the self-reinforcing and self-congratulating Hyde Park corner of the Church, which they provincially mistake for the whole of the Church, as if London's real Hyde Park corner were Parliament, Whitehall, Buckingham Palace, and all of England combined. Only greater consecration will cure ambivalence and casualness in any of us. As already noted, the tutoring challenges arising from increased consecration may be severe, but reflect the divine mercy necessary to induce further consecration. If we have grown soft, hard times may be necessary. Deprivation may prepare us for further consecration, though we shudder at the thought. If we are too easily contented, God may administer a dose of divine discontent. His long-suffering thus becomes very necessary to maximize our agency and development. But he is not an indulgent father. We cannot bear all things now, but the Lord will lead us along as we give place in our thoughts and schedules and give away our sins in order to make room to receive all that God can give us. 
Each of us, brothers and sisters, is an innkeeper who decides if there is room for Jesus. Consecration is the only surrender which is also a victory. It brings release from the raucous, overpopulated cell block of selfishness and emancipation from the dark prison of pride. Yet, instead of striving for greater consecration, it is so easy to go on performing casually in half-hearted compliance, as if hoping to ride to paradise on a golf cart. But is being consecrated and swallowed up a threat to our individuality? No. Heavenly Father is only asking us to lose the old self in order to find the new and the real self. It is not a question of losing our identity, but of finding our true identity. When at last we are truly pointed homeward, then the world's pointing fingers of scorn can better be endured. As we come to know to whom we belong, the other forms of belonging cease to mean very much. Likewise, as Jesus begins to have a real place in our lives, we are much less concerned with losing our places in the world. When our minds really catch hold of the significance of Jesus' atonement, the world's hold on us loosens. Increased consecration is not so much a demand for more hours of Church work as it is for more awareness of whose work this really is. For now, consecration may not require giving up worldly possessions so much as being less possessed by them. Only when things begin to come into focus with an eye single do we see things as they really are. What of you awaits? Only to the degree that we respond to life's temptations as Jesus did, who gave no heed unto them, will we be free, free at last. True orthodoxy thus brings safety and felicity. It is not only correctness, but happiness. Strange, isn't it? Even the very word orthodoxy has fallen into disfavor with some. As society gets more and more flaky, a few rush forward to warn shrilly against orthodoxy. Remember how, with Pharaoh's angry army in hot pursuit, Ancient Israel aligned themselves with the Lord's instructions. Moses stretched forth his hand, and the Red Sea parted, with towering walls of water on each side. Israel walked through a narrow passage obediently and, no doubt, quickly. There were no warnings about conforming that day. There are passages ahead which will require similar obedience as prophets lead the men and women of Christ in a straight and narrow course. Becoming more like Jesus in thought and behavior is not grinding and repressing, but emancipating and discovering. Unorthodoxy in behavior and intellect is just the opposite. A little pornography may lead not only to child and spouse abuse, but it slowly sucks out the marrow of self-esteem. A little tendency to gossip can lead not only to bearing serious false witness, but more often to malicious whispers, which, unfortunately, memory will warehouse as a shout. 
a little criticism of the brethren, which seems harmless enough, may not only damage other members, but can even lead to one setting himself up as a substitute light unto the world. Yes, happily, some such prodigals do come back, but they usually walk alone, unaccompanied by those they once led astray. Jesus counseled his disciples, Wherefore, settle this in your hearts, that you will do the things which I shall teach and command you. Getting thus settled precedes consecration. The prophet Joseph Smith said, Gospel knowledge does away with darkness, suspense, and doubt, and that there is no pain so awful as that of suspense. Being settled keeps us from responding to every little ripple of dissent as if it were a tidal wave. We are to be disciples, not oscillators, like a reed shaken in the wind. More members need the immense relief and peace which can come from being settled, without which those individuals will be like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. There is another special reason to become settled. We will live in a time in which all things shall be in commotion. The uncertainties, upheavals, and topsy-turviness of today's world will be such that those who vacillate and equivocate will be tossed about by severe turbulence. Finally, if we shrink from deeper consecration, then we are not worthy of him who, for our sake, refused to shrink in the midst of his deepening agony during the Atonement. Instead, Jesus pressed forward giving his all and completing his marvelous preparations unto the children of men. Consider, what if Jesus' mortal messiahship had consisted only of remarkable sermons or was further enhanced with healings and other miracles, but without Gethsemane's and Calvary's awful but consecrated hours of atonement? How then would we regard Jesus' ministry? Where would mankind be? Brothers and sisters, whatever we embrace instead of Jesus and his work will keep us from being embraced by him upon entering his kingdom. May we get settled and prepare now for that marvelous moment then. I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Anyone who has been permitted to serve as we have is honored beyond personal merit. We know that and are grateful. The Bible declares that God is the Father and the God of the spirits of all mankind. The Apostle Paul taught the people at Athens that we are God's offspring and the Romans, that the Spirit beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Because of our Father's great love for his children and because of his commitment to freedom of choice for them, mankind has from the beginning enjoyed the opportunity to choose for themselves. John declares in the first few verses of his gospel that Christ was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. Scripture also records that the Spirit of Christ is given to everyone, that he may know good from evil. There is an accompanying significant scripture 
that explains why not every person walks by the light and why some do not choose good over evil. The Spirit enlighteneth every man through the world that hearkeneth to the voice of the Spirit. Our Heavenly Father desires that all mankind be led by the light, but that blessing will not be imposed upon anyone. Christ stands at the door and knocks. Those who wish to have him enter and sup with them must hear his voice and open the door. Thus, two great principles on which the gospel is centered, love and agency, are plainly taught. Each of us is here to learn to love and give and hearken to the Spirit and choose to do the will of the Father. God wants his offspring and heirs to become all that we can be, to qualify for our inheritance. But we must choose. We are the decision-makers, and he will not relieve that responsibility. As early as the book of Deuteronomy, it is written, I have set before thee this day life and good, and death and evil. Therefore choose life, that both thou and thy seed may live, that thou mayest love the Lord thy God and obey his voice. Through the light of the Lord, truth in some measure has reached many avenues and elements and levels of life. And a great satisfaction to find so much that is so good in so many places and from so many sources. President Joseph F. Smith spoke of the united members of the Godhead as the fountain of truth and said, From this fountain all the ancient learned philosophers have received their inspiration and wisdom. From it they have received all their knowledge. If we find truth in broken fragments through the ages, it may be set down as an incontrovertible fact that it originated at the fountain and was given to philosophers, inventors, patriots, reformers, and prophets by the inspiration of God. Earlier and subsequent leaders of the Church have similarly testified. In every field of activity in which I have been involved, I have had the privilege of association with people of character and quality who shared much of value with me. Consider this special example of the wisdom of a beloved Quaker teacher and writer, Rufus Jones, who said, Vital religion cannot be maintained and preserved on the theory that God dealt with our human race only in the far past ages and that the Bible is the only evidence we have that our God is a living, revealing, communicating God. If God ever spoke, he is still speaking. He is the great I am, not the great he was. This is a significant expression of fundamental truth. Our own understanding of that principle is that God communicates with his children and that he has revealed, does now reveal, and will yet reveal many great and important things pertaining to his kingdom. Jewish tradition helps us further appreciate the nature of our Heavenly Father in the tender practice of the half-Hallels offered at Passover in celebration of the historical exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt and their passing through the Red Sea. When they reached the sea, the pursuing Egyptian armies overtook them. Through Moses, God divided the waters, and the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon the dry ground. The Egyptians went in after them.
Then Moses stretched his hand again over the sea, and the waters returned. The Israelites were safe, and the Egyptian armies were drowning. Triumphantly, the people began to sing hymns of praise to the Lord. But the Almighty stopped them and said, How can you sing hymns of praise and jubilation when so many of my children are drowning in the sea? In remembrance of that event, Jewish people during the latter period of Passover include abridged or shortened psalms of praise, half hallels, as part of the celebration. Truly, light from the source has shone through all the world. We rejoice in this and have a humble witness to bear. God is a living, revealing, communicating Father. When there are joined with the rich resources of ancient prophets and writers in the Bible, the supporting and enhancing truths available in the scriptures of the Restoration, those welded treasures bring clarifying light and knowledge to the most important questions mankind has asked through the ages and now asks and in the future will continue to ask with increasing concern as populations and interpretations multiply. They deal with the truth about God and Christ and the Holy Spirit, the Godhead, about man himself, about mortal life and its meaning and purposes, and about eternity and its promises. A significant example of this fuller light is in response to the expanding catalog of concerns that face mankind—individuals, institutions, countries, civilization. The psalmist thousands of years ago cried, Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. He then spoke of problems, some of which sound strangely familiar to a modern ear. This very hour in our troubled world, calamity and destruction, fear, starvation, conflict, beleaguer the earth. Afflictions and adversities burden many lives. Books multiply, dealing with personal and family and societal troubles. Often they seem to agree that the right question to ask is not why good people have trials, but how shall good people respond when they are tried? The scriptures help us to answer some important questions. Does God promise His children immunity from trouble and affliction? Is tribulation evidence of His displeasure? Did the prophets of old and Christ and His apostles live without adversity? Did he promise his followers that they would be spared trouble? Scripture responds. The Sermon on the Mount speaks to those who mourn, who are poor in spirit, who are reviled and persecuted, who have evil spoken against them falsely. The counsel is to turn the other cheek when smitten and to go the extra mile when forced. Mentioned are those who trespass, who are enemies, who curse and hate and despitefully use innocent others. The sun shines on the evil and the good. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. To early leaders in the Church came the admonition, Be patient in afflictions, for thou shalt have many. God does not deny us the experience we came here to have. He does not insulate us from tribulation or guarantee immunity from trouble. Much of the pain we suffer and inevitably impose upon others is self-induced through our own bad judgment, through poor choices, and for that help is offered. To the penitent sinner comes the assurance that God will forgive, forget, and never mention our sins, of which we have truly repented.
But much that happens to us in this life we cannot control. We only respond. Knowing what God has promised can provide the courage and faith we need. We are assured in the scriptures that we may know of a surety that the Lord does visit his people in their afflictions, and that that whosoever shall put their trust in God shall be supported in their trials and their troubles and their afflictions, and shall be lifted up at the last day. Jesus said to those who mourned the loss of a loved one, And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Said he to the lonely and the hopeless and those who are afraid, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Thus the promise is that in times of sorrow and affliction, if we endure and remain faithful and put our trust in him and are courageous, the Lord will visit us in our afflictions, strengthen us to carry our burdens, and support us in our trials. He'll be with us to the end of our days, lift us at the last day to greater opportunities for service, and exalt us at last with Him and reunited loved ones, and He will consecrate our afflictions to our gain. One of the experiences that has reached the deep centers of my soul in recent years was to hear a choice bishop share with others in a meeting the tender feelings of his heart concerning the loss of his wife to cancer, an experience many other husbands and wives and families will understand. Twenty years earlier, he had watched his mother pass through severe suffering before she died, and he had carried with him through the years a sense of resentment for the anguish she had endured. With his wife's ordeal, however, harsh as it was for her and in a measure for her family, his anger sublimated into a closer spiritual relationship with the Lord, and he was able more gracefully to share her burden. Shortly before she died, his wife asked him to give her a blessing for relief from the intense pain. They both wept as he laid his hands on her head and talked with the Lord, and he said, I felt the spiritual presence of our Father in heaven. I had the strongest sensation that someone else was there weeping with us. Near the end, severely physically debilitated, she said, Never have I been more whole. The strong sensation that he was there weeping with us? Of course, why not? Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus. He wept over Jerusalem's pretending afflictions. And he wept when he came to the American continent and knelt with his people, and especially when he took their little children one by one and blessed them and prayed unto the Father for them. At home last evening, after our meetings yesterday, we opened a note from a lovely Latter-day Saint mother, widowed by the death of her husband in an accident two years ago. She and her choice family have taken comfort, she said, from a framed statement on the wall of my office. To believe in God is to know that all the rules will be fair and that there will be wonderful surprises. I thank God for His love and the love of His Son. Those who have taken upon themselves the name of His Son, as we have done, must carry the burden of the legacy He left us of love and mercy and service, accepting our heritage of hope and helpfulness, and joining our believing and our doing in working for the relief of the ills and the sufferings of humanity.
God help us in honoring that commission. I humbly pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Some of the sweetest memories of my childhood center in the occasional summer and fall days spent with my brothers at Uncle Zine's farm in rural Virginia. There we hiked through woods with fragrant wildflowers. We marveled at flying squirrels, colorful birds, and even occasionally discovered a fox or a pheasant. Meandering streams invited us to catch sunfish, and a cool, pure spring satisfied our thirst. There were roasted hot dogs, potato salad, sweet pickles, and, of course, hot apple pie with homemade ice cream. Every turn of the crank heightened our anticipation of that seldom-savored treat. But the most treasured experience was the rope swing Uncle Zine had hung in a tall tree near a beautiful brook. Its long, gliding passes provided hours of pure joy. We would arch our backs and fling our legs and feet to see who could go the fastest and highest. It was sheer delight. Once, to treat me to even more excitement, my brother Gerald put me on a wooden seat, then rotated the swing until the ropes were twisted in a double, double row of knots. With a mighty thrust, he launched me into a spin of ever-increasing velocity. At first, there was a feeling of exhilaration as I began to pick up speed. That short-lived pleasure was quickly replaced <laughs> by increasing feelings of dizziness, nausea, and just plain terror. When the horrible experience was over, I couldn't walk without falling. My head reeled, and I was certain my stomach would never again be the same. Throughout it all, Gerald jumped with glee. When I finally fell out of the seat, he remarked, Wasn't that terrific? <laughs> my mind thought, You're crazy. But my mouth said, Yeah, that was great. Get in and I'll show you how much fun it was. <laughs> <clears throat> I wonder if some of us are doing the same thing. Are you in your own life? Instead of enjoying the countless edifying experience, precious wholesome relationship, and the wondrous beauties of the earth the Lord has given for our happiness, do you pursue excitement beyond the bounds he has set? Do you seek transitory stimulation, even recognizing that it is always followed by powerful negative feelings? Do tantalizing emotions stimulate your appetite, creating an insatiable thirst for more? Does that thirst override the motivation to improve that should result from the negative harvest of transgression? Is your focus on satisfying appetite through increased participation, even though that you begin to sense that inevitably it will bring very unpleasant consequences? Have you wondered how and when you will stop? Even though you publicly defend strongly your actions, privately, in moments of sober contemplation, you may have recognized that you are in trouble. While outwardly you may blame others for your problem, 
inside, you may have already discovered that indulgence in violation of trust and denial of truth leads to ever-diminishing options. One backs himself other farther into a corner. Finally, there seems to be no way out, and a sense of hopelessness sets in. I have no interest but to help you. Will you listen? I may challenge some of your fixed ideas, but will you listen for a few minutes? You may be tired of others always trying to run your life, always telling you what to do. After all, you have the right to make your own choices. That is correct. You have that right. It is your agency. The secret to solve problems in your life will be found in understanding and in using the eternal beneficial interaction of your agency and His truth. The Master said, He that keepeth the commandments receiveth truth and light. Light and truth forsake that evil one. And that wicked one cometh and taketh away light and truth through disobedience from the children of man. He also declared, Every man may act in doctrine and principle according to the moral agency which I have given unto him, that every man may be accountable in the day of judgment. These scriptures teach how to overcome the effects of wrong choices. Whether they be lying, stealing, gambling, addiction to alcohol, or drugs, immorality, inflicting abuse, or anything like it, simply stated, one must use his agency to obey truth. When others give you advice, have you ever said, I just don't believe the way you do? Those are your principles and your standards. I have my own. Please understand that no one can change truth. Rationalization, overpowering self-interest, all of the arguments of men, anger, self-will, cannot change truth. Satan knows that, so he tries to create an atmosphere where one unwittingly begins to feel that he can not only choose what to do, but can determine what is right to do. Satan strives to persuade us to live outside truth by rationalizing our actions as the right of choice. But our Eternal Father defined truth and established what is right and wrong before the creation of this earth. He also fixed the consequences of obedience and disobedience to those truths. He defended our right to choose our path in life so that we would grow, develop, and be happy. But we do not have the right to choose the consequences of our acts. Those who willfully, consistently disobey His commandments will inevitably learn that truth. Joseph Smith was inspired to record, When we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. Please understand 
no one has the privilege to choose what is right. God reserved that prerogative to himself. Our Heavenly Father gave us truth. Some are statements of cause and effect. We call them commandments. They guide our life to happiness. He knew that Satan would try to persuade some to live without fixed standards in life so that decisions would be based on current circumstances. What appears convenient or what provides the greatest personal return? In this way, Satan removes the power of truth from one's life so he can take that soul captive. If you are trapped and there seems to be no way out, remember what Robert Frost taught. The way out is through. You you must face and conquer the challenge. The way through is based on faith in Jesus Christ and obedience to his commandments. It is the only way to permanently cure the damage to mind and spirit caused by unrighteous acts. It also provides healing within the bounds of eternal truth to a body devastated by the effects of transgression. It may be hard in your state of mind to understand that. Please believe me. He will help you when you do it his way. A prophet said, For how knoweth a man the master whom he has not served, who is a stranger unto him, and is far from the thoughts and intents of his heart? Read and learn about the Savior. Until you know him, then trust him. You may have found that change is hard. You may wonder why you are not believed when you decide to change from a life of disobedience to one of integrity and compliance to truth. Recognize that it takes time to build a reputation that overcomes the effects of past deliberate decisions to deceive and to take advantage of others but it is worth it. Have you noticed that no matter how worthy your intent and how many procedures you follow precisely, if you make the tiniest mistake with a computer, it will not respond. All of your effort is futile. That is not the way the Lord works. There is nothing tricky about his commandments. He wants you to succeed. Where there is purity of heart and real intent, it is known to the Lord. Your obedience to truth and proper use of agency opens the door to his divine help. At first, perhaps, only you and he will believe your sincerity, but you will be rewarded by the joy that comes from personal positive progress. In time, others will recognize your consistent righteous acts and support you. Many people offer advice, but one's suggestions often conflict with another's. How do you know whom to believe? Ask yourself these questions. What motivates the offer of help? Does your common sense confirm it is right? If so, it will be consistent with the teachings of the Savior. 
Has the advice offered been followed in the giver's life? Has it improved the quality of that life? Honest evaluation of advice against these standards will help you decide whether it is motivated for your benefit or another's self-interest. A true friend is not one that always encourages you to do what you want to do, but one who helps you do what you know you ought to do. You can block the power of truth in your life to correct by constantly letting others protect you from the consequences of your unworthy acts without being smart enough to change your life. Your failure to properly respond will help fix false concepts in your mind, and you'll see no need to repent. Your negative patterns will be reinforced, not rejected. How can one decide when to help you and when to let you grow from facing reality? The Lord has provided the answer. When you show genuine remorse, a contrite heart, a recognition of guilt, movement in the direction of improvement, even though there may be slippage, where there is acceptance of responsibility for improper acts, support and help are needed and will be productive. Should you continue to manipulate, blame others for improper decisions, be deceitful and determined to continue the path of transgression by camouflage or cover-up, you are reinforcing false principles and have chosen to head for a showdown with tough reality. It is one thing to know how to heal your life. It is quite another to do it. You will change only when you recognize that it will bring lasting personal benefit. Deep down you know that breaking commandments does not bring anything productive and does cause a lot of grief for yourself and others. Don't wait to hit bottom. That is painful and could have leave physical scars that can't be healed. You can fool others who want you to be helped, but you cannot deceive the Lord. Because of his justice, one day he will have to confront you with the consequences of your unrepentant acts. No one wants that to happen. Some transgressions are so powerful that it is unlikely that you will begin to overcome them without another's help. Seek that aid. You can begin with a trusted friend, someone that understands truth and agency. You can begin anywhere, with a friend or a loved one, competent professional, a solid member. As you gain confidence, see your bishop. He has priesthood keys to help you. Begin now and don't stop until you understand and obey the teachings of the Savior and receive healing power in your life. Otherwise, the healing will be incomplete. 
this comment, used by permission of one someone else helped, shows how the Lord gives healing through a priesthood leader when he acts as an inspired instrument. I so appreciated your words of wisdom and kindness. I have felt such a strength from the Lord. My testimony is growing step by step each day. I still have heartache and pain, but now I realize that it is for my own good and that there is light at the end of the tunnel. The blessing you gave me under the direction of the Spirit truly changed me. I am finally able to have hope and know that I will work through this time. I am able to look forward to each new day." Unquote. I testify that the Savior heals permanently. He said, Have ye any that are afflicted in any manner? Bring them hither, and I will heal them. For I see that your faith is sufficient that I should heal you. And he did heal them, every one. I testify that the Savior will heal you as you choose to obey truth and your, use your agency according to his counsel. May he soften your heart that you may know that the things we have discussed are true. May he give you the courage and strength to begin to be healed now. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.